Bible or an app to the 17th chapter of John. This is our last message on John chapters 13 through 17, what John Stott described as the heart of the Bible, a lot because it emphasizes what may be the main theme of Christianity. And we're going to wait a while before we actually get to that, so please don't close it. Just keep it handy. We're going to go through the entire chapter, which we don't usually do. Um, But first, I want to pray and then tell you a story. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and work powerfully. We, um, We can be stubborn. We can not see things. We can gloss over things. So help us to see for each of us whatever is the important part of Jesus' prayer. We ask that you would show us. In his name, amen. So I want to tell you about a young woman and then ask you to imagine yourself in her place and what would you think, what would you do if you were she? She's 25. Everyone at her university a few years earlier considered her to be the most beautiful woman in the school. And over the years, she's had at least a dozen offers to become a model. Now, she met her fiancé sophomore year of college, and they dated for several years. Now they've been engaged for some months. But she's not only beautiful, she's also brilliant. She was the top student in her high school, the top student in her college, and the top student in her graduate program. But the thing that her friends appreciate about her the most is her character. She reminds them of Jesus. She's humble, she's helpful, she's generous with her time and her money. She's a patient listener, and she prays for the people in her small group from church every day. She's full of joy, she's not full of herself. She's always there for people, and she has a great sense of humor. Now, her fiancé would rather get married would, would rather get married sooner rather than later, but she's having second thoughts. Although he always is commenting on how great she looks, he never really wants to spend much time talking. He isn't really interested in her stories about her involvement in the children's ministry at church. He doesn't really care to get to know her friends. He spends a lot of time on on his own looks and his own clothes. And when she asked him about his long-term goals, he said he just wants the two of them to stay young and fit as long as they can. When she asked him about having kids, he said, well, maybe someday when they were both past their prime, When she asked him to describe what he understands to be her dreams and aspirations, he said, "Uh, same as mine, right? To have fun, stay gorgeous for for as long as you can. But she's coming to the realization that he mostly just likes her for her looks. That his attraction to her does not actually include her inner self, her character, her values, her dreams. He's not interested in spending time with her to get to know the real her. He just knows her superficially. So he's, she's wondering if he actually loves her at all, the real her. And how will he feel about her some years later when her beauty fades? Well, if you were this young woman, what would you do? Would you go ahead and just get married, assuming everything would improve? Would you you call it off? Would you try to get in to go to counseling and maybe work through it? At the first service, I said, what would you do? And people yelled out, run! You guys are more self-controlled than me. Um, 
you know that God often finds himself in a similar situation? He's glorious, faithful, patient, loving, wise, self-sacrificing. He has the most beautiful heart that exists. He is the most lovely and the most lovable of all beings. Yet many people who claim that they love him and who plan to spend the rest of their lives with him on into eternity don't really care all that much about getting to know him and to live with him. If you want to be loved just for your looks or just for your money or just because of you're from a family that has some kind of status and power, do you know why you want to be loved for your real self and not just superficially? Because you were created in the image of God with the capacity to actually love in a transcendent way that's not just chemicals going on in your brain and with the deep desire to be loved for your real self, not just superficially, to be known and still loved. Not in some mercenary kind of way, not just because of the benefits that you bring to the relationship. You see, God wants you to know and love the real him. Perhaps that is the central concept of Christianity, that God wants to have a loving, gracious, fulfilling relationship with you where you know and love the real him. Okay, would you open back up your Bible now, chapter 17. As I said, you want to keep it open, we're going to go through the whole thing. And let's look at the second most famous prayer of Jesus that in the scripture, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We're going to celebrate communion today about being forgiven. Is eternal life being forgiven for our sins so that we can go to heaven and not go to hell? That's uh, certainly important, but that's not the main thing about eternal life. C.S. Lewis described it in the following way, with the following metaphor. He said, what if you had been looking forward to this trip? It's going to go for months. You've saved up your money. You've planned, and you're all packed up and ready to go, and you're going to go out where you're going to see wonderful sights. You're going to eat sumptuous food. You're going to spend time with your favorite people in the whole world. You're going to be gone for months, and you're all set to go. And you go out the door, and you step, and you misstep right into some really mushy mud. And your foot goes down almost halfway up to your calf, and the mud goes over into your shoes. But what would you do? You go back inside. Take off the shoe, take off the socks, clean it off, clean off your foot, dry the shoe, put on different socks, and then you start to clean it again. God the Son came to earth as Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a perfect life and then died for our sins and rose again to cleanse us from our sins, to basically clean off the boot, get another sock, and clean off the foot so that we could start again on the journey, on the amazing adventure that was always his plan. Now, we'll forever be amazed and grateful 
for how much he sacrificed to save us from our sins. But he did it so that we could get back on track with what God has always wanted, which is that you would know him, experience him, the real him, and be loved by him and love him back. In this passage, it says that eternal life is to know the one true God. Know in this, in the Greek, often, it doesn't mean simply head knowledge. It doesn't mean superficial. It's often used in the Bible to mean the intimacy between a, a husband and wife. Eternal life is not merely missing out on hell. Those who receive eternal life will experience God himself forever, intimately, in all of his glory. In all of his glory. Now, Jesus is going to mention glory a number of times in this passage, and we're going to look at the whole thing, but what I'd like to do is go through the rest of it relatively rapidly. It's a lot of of Scripture. And look at how some of that impacts our lives today. And then to finish our series, come back to the question of glory and how that's connected to knowing and loving God. So follow along, if you will. Verse 4. Jesus is praying. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is asking to return to the Father's presence and experience the glory that he experienced with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the world existed. This is another instance of Jesus claiming to be God. He existed before the earth. Now, either Jesus is crazy, or he's a liar, or he actually is God. There aren't other options, really. And if you're here today, and you know, you haven't really decided yet whether or not Jesus is God. You haven't really made that commitment to say, I'm going to follow him no matter what. What I would recommend is that you read through Gospel of John, the Gospel of Luke, one of the other Gospels, and just ask and say, God, if you're there, Holy Spirit, if you're there, would you please just show me if Jesus is God or not? Because I don't think you can read those through in a reasonable fashion and come to the conclusion that he's a liar or that he's crazy. Unless you are really convinced that you don't care what conclusion you come to, you are not following him, then you'll convince yourself that he's not. But I recommend that if you're considering it. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. You may remember last week at the end of chapter 16, the disciples finally say, now you're not speaking figuratively. Now we know you came from God and we believe that you know everything. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In the Bible, the word world is used in several different ways. It can mean the created world that God created and he says, and it was good. But it can also mean the society around us, the people who are not followers of Jesus. And every society, whether it's here in America or Iran or 
China, wherever it is, there are some good things about that society that are lined up with God's character, with what is good. And every society, here as well as others, there are some things that are not aligned with God, what God says is good. And they're not helpful and they're not loving. And that's what Jesus refers to and the New Testament refers to as the world. The aspect of society that tries to pressure us into a mold that is not aligned with God's character, with what is truly loving. So Jesus is praying for his followers. He's not praying for the people who are not his followers. Verse 10, and we call that the world. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So what Jesus is saying is up to this point, he has kept his followers safe, but now he's leaving. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is asking the Father to protect his followers from the evil one. Now, a biblical worldview is not very popular in our society, the world, today. It never has been, really. But a biblical worldview includes that there are actually powerful evil beings, spiritual beings. We call them demons or fallen angels. And they are on a mission to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now, sometimes they use their power to tempt people, sometimes to make them sick, sometimes to add more power to their addictions and um, make it very difficult for them or to inspire fear or bitterness. Jesus cast out demons. You can't read the Bible and take Jesus seriously without realizing that he took demons seriously. The apostles cast out demons, same thing. All through human history, Christians have cast out demons. They're very real. People who intentionally invite demons into their lives, and this happens in many places in the world, they usually suffer horribly. But also, people who exclude demons from their worldview and don't have a biblical worldview, they are often influenced by them without actually knowing it. The demons will latch on to some area of disobedience in their lives, even followers of Jesus, who have kind of excluded that. And maybe they'll keep them angry or bitter or addicted to pornography or drugs or alcohol or adultery or bad-mouthing. And the world, the flesh, and the devil will all gang up and attempt to destroy you. And usually, if you've got something you really struggle with and you're not getting victory over it, you need to take this into account. It's not just because of your fallen nature. It's not just because of the pressure of society out there. It, there's also supernatural power involved. And so when you take that seriously, when that's part of your worldview, you will pray more for spiritual protection. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What does the word sanctify mean? It means to make holy, to make 
like Jesus. Jesus' followers are going to be sanctified in the truth. They're going to be understanding a biblical worldview. And the Holy Spirit's going to use his supernatural power to break addiction, to make them slow to anger, to make them quick to forgive, to make them more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. And it takes supernatural power, but God doesn't do it in a vacuum. He tells them what it is to be loving, what it is to be kind, what it is to be patient, and then gives them the power to become more and more that way. They are sanctified. They are made like Jesus in the truth. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Can I read that again? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. If you're a follower of Jesus, right there, Jesus is praying for you. If you aren't a follower yet, but someday you become a follower of Jesus, right there, Jesus is praying for you. He knows that his life, his death, his resurrection is going to turn the world upside down. It's going to change it forever. And millions, perhaps billions of people are going to become his followers. And he prays for them. He prays for you. What does he pray? Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's praying for our relationships to look similar to the relationship between the Father and the Son. And you could add in the Holy Spirit, who've been in this glorious love relationship for all eternity. He says that others will know we are his followers by our love. And he's also praying that we will live in unity without grumbling or complaining or divisions. Unfortunately, in the Bible, right in the beginning, in the early church, throughout history, we see many, many instances where people who claimed to be followers of Jesus didn't love each other well and were often divisive. In the New Testament, the church of Corinth was known for this. Nevertheless, Jesus is praying that we will learn to love each other so well that it will be obvious to outsiders. And he's praying that we'll, we'll avoid grumbling, avoid causing Verse 22, as we finish this second most famous prayer of Jesus's, And we're going to then look at glory. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So righteous, Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known by the love with which you have loved me, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. What is glory? What does glory have to do with your love for God, your experience with God? There are two TV shows that I record, and then I watch them, and I fast forward through the commercials. Uh, one is The Voice, which is basically a talent show for singers, and another is America's Got Talent, which also includes singers, which is usually my favorite part. Both people that 
sing in these shows are hoping it'll be their big break, that they'll win the competition and go on to be stars. And sometimes the singers are very talented, but from my point of view, they'll pick a song that just doesn't really resonate with me, that doesn't really connect. And, and you can see in the crowd, sometimes that's true of the crowd as well. But there are moments. There are times when the voice of the singer, the demeanor of their face, and the song that they pick, it all comes together and it just transcends the physical body. An entire audience rises spontaneously to their feet deeply moved. And I'll feel my, even just through the television, I'll feel my heart swell, feel the hairs on my arms stand up, and my soul will be moved. And I think you can legitimately call that what I'm experiencing is glorious. I often have that experience here when we worship. Part of the glory we will experience in heaven will be seen. So that's one kind of glory. Do you know that when angels appear in the, New Te- in, the, in the Bible, almost always people are just overwhelmed with what I would call their presence, their glory. It, emo- it, e- it emanates, it radiates from them, and people spontaneously want to worship them. It's something about their presence. It's another kind of glory. time during a thunderstorm in Mississippi, a big bolt of lightning struck about 50 yards away from me, and it was blinding, it was incredibly loud, deafening, and the shock wave and the ionization of the air just, I just felt this power, this glory. God says that eternal life is to know the one true God, not in a superficial way, to real Him. And in God's presence, His true self, His characteristics radiate from Him. We'll be awed and overwhelmed by His, by his love, His beauty, His power, His goodness. It'll be like being close to lightning, only more so. It'll be like when someone, when an angel appears, it'll be like 10,000 angels appearing in front of you and the amount of glory radiating. It'll be like when everything comes together in a song and you just you feel it transcending in your soul. It'll be the most engaging, most interesting. It'll give you more pleasure than anything you've ever had. It'll be enthralling, overwhelming. life is knowing the one true God, knowing Him intimately in all of His glory. God wants you to love Him for the real Him, not only for the benefits that He gives you, but for who He is. He wants to have a loving, gracious, fulfilling relationship with you. Have you ever fallen in love? you ever fall in love? Lily, Lily probably has one. Anyway. And, and I'm talking about that period of time that we refer to about falling in love of infatuation. And falling in love, become infatuated with someone who also is loving you back. And, and you're not yet irritated with the things that are different about them. Those are kind of nice to you at this point. Um, and, and you think about them throughout the day. 
do you long to be with them? You want to know everything about them. See, I think that God built us that way to help us understand what we have to look forward to. We will never get a little infatuation with God once we get in his presence. Falling in love is just a weak shadow of knowing and loving God for the real him and all of his glory. Now I know in this life it's often difficult for us to truly experience God's presence and know the real him. It sometimes feels more like a long distance relationship with a fiance that you're just waiting so you can finally be together and get married. It can hardly be. So while you wait, do all that you can to know God now. Study the Bible. He says the disciples be sanctified in the truth. Spend time talking with him in prayer. Serve alongside him. Make every effort to walk through your day conscious of his presence. And then one day, you will be in his presence and experience his glory. And you will be filled with joy as you finally realize just how magnificent eternal life is. Because it means you get to know and experience God in all his glory. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, 